we live in a time of abundance, an abundance of uh, access to all of the spiritual traditions on the face of the earth and all of the uh, psychological understandings and shamanic traditions. And there are just infinite number of self-help gurus willing to tell you how to fix your life. <coughs> and many of these um, teachers and traditions offer as the uh, goal or the uh, benefit of their uh, practice or their path or their way of, of life, uh, uh, fulfillment, uh, peace, uh, union with God, infinite consciousness, freedom, liberation, uh, I don't know, I, I, but there's a lot of them. And they have a lot of uh, uh, catchy goals that are bound to catch our attention because so often the goals seem to point to something that we don't have. And then we have the Buddha's teaching. And the Buddha says, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering, which is not a very catchy title to catch people's uh, attention. <laughs> Nevertheless, if we really look at what's going on in our life and why we're looking at those book titles anyway, it's because there's some level of discontentment, some level of suffering, some level of not yet fulfilled, not yet content, not yet peaceful, not yet at ease with ourself and the conditions of life on earth as a human being. The Bodhisattva was a human being, just like all of us, uh, born, raised, uh, lived a life of luxury in his father's palaces for 29 years, got married, uh, had a child, uh, left home, absentee dad, <coughs> and um, went looking for some solution, some understanding, some way of holding life that was free of suffering because he saw clearly uh, in his infrequent trips outside of the palace, he saw the fact, he got it, he grokked the fact that he was going to uh, grow old, get sick, and die. And that bothered him. And so he was looking for a uh, a way of understanding life that minimized the suffering of uh, human life. After leaving home and undertaking the spiritual practices of his day, he, um, after six years of ascetic practices, he, he did realize the truth. And he, uh, through his own efforts, came to understand the way things are so profoundly that he freed his mind from uh, conditioning that caused him to suffer. As the teachings of the Buddha have migrated around the globe from India where he lived to China and Tibet and eventually Korea's Japan, Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, and now coming to uh, the West, the teachings of liberation have met the prevailing cultural paradigm, religion, or understanding, and have merged in some way that has resulted in a unique uh, to that location form of Buddhism. So we have uh, Tibetan Buddhism or Tantra looking very different than Zen Buddhism of Japan. And they both look very different than the monastic uh, lifestyle in Thailand, 
Burma or Sri Lanka. And we might ask, is there anything that these different traditions that appear so differently in their practices, in their rituals, in their behaviors, in their teachings even, is there anything that unifies them all or underlies uh, all of them? And when we look, uh, we see that indeed there is a bedrock of teachings that all traditions of Buddhism or Buddhist teachings uh, rely on, and that is the Four Noble Truths. And we can characterize the Four Noble Truths, or the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, as the uh, essential Dhamma, or the bedrock of uh, the Buddha's understanding, wherever it goes. So, in our own search for minimizing our personal suffering, it is useful to consider what the Buddha had to say and to see if it is uh, practical and uh, applicable in our life today. <clears throat> so I want to speak about uh, the Four Noble Truths tonight, not so much as a good theory or even as a the orthodox teaching of the Buddha, but rather as something that's very practical for us, a teaching that points to uh, the conditions of our life, uh, the way of practice, and the possibility of uh, ending suffering, or minimizing to the point of ending uh, all forms of suffering in our life. The first noble truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means truth, and so the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha. Now, when I was first starting practice 30-some years ago, the first noble truth was articulated as, oh, life is suffering. Well, I was in my early 20s and mid-20s, and I was young and healthy and full of it, full of myself. and had all of life to look forward to, and went to a retreat, and I heard this teaching on life is suffering. And even though I was sitting in the back, leaning against the piano, with my body in utter agony and my mind just screaming at, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I wasn't suffering. <laughs> it wasn't until 10 years later, after dozens of retreats, when I went to Burma and I heard one of Saito Upandita's translators say, oh, dukkha means the oppressive nature of phenomena. I really began to get it. I really began to understand. I could, I could open to, oh, the oppressive nature of phenomena. What I realized then is that when I heard the word suffering, it was too scary a word. It was too oppressive a word. It was too much. Uh, because if I was suffering, to me, that meant I was a failure. I hadn't gotten it together. I hadn't kind of figured it out. I was not a success. And to open to suffering, or that I was suffering, was just not possible. My conditioning of denial was so strong, and my conditioning of avoidance was so effective that I didn't know I was suffering. Well, this helped me to see just how difficult it is to open to the First Noble Truth, to really crock it, what the Buddha was talking about when he says, there is this truth of dukkha. What does dukkha mean? first, and maybe the most obvious uh, and easily accessible meaning of the word dukkha, is pain. There's the truth of pain. Well, I think we all can, can confirm that pretty handily. You know, we have this body, and it is painful at times. You know, it gets sick, that's painful. It gets tired, that's painful. When it's hungry, it's painful. If you eat too much, that's painful. You slam your finger in the door, that's painful. 
you know, the body's got, it's subject to pain. Well, that's, that's pretty obvious. But the Buddha said it also means the obvious uh, mental or emotional pain. And this is the pain of um, fear, anxiety, confusion, depression, uh, jealousy, anger, insatiable desire, uh, and, and the list just goes on infinitely. Feeling betrayed, feeling uh, the force of prejudice against you, feeling isolated, alienated, lonely. There are gross forms and there are very subtle forms of mental suffering, very obvious, and we have all experienced all of it at one time or another in our life. And it's suffering. This kind of pain, both the physical and mental, is so obvious it's called dukkha dukkha, like you can't miss it. But there's a subtler experience of dukkha that it is important that we begin to open to and begin to understand, to fully understand what the Buddha was pointing to, and it is uh, relies on or it's based on the fact that everything changes. Now, because everything changes, every physical, mental, emotional, internal, external, gross, subtle thing changes eventually, and sometimes quickly, what that means is nothing in our life is really very stable or secure. Our health might be stable for a while, but it can change. Our finances, well, we don't have to look far for that. Uh, our uh, relationship to others, our happiness, it, everything about us, everything about our life, everything that we have kind of cobbled together in life to provide us a sense of security, stability, place in the world is subject to change. And when these conditions change, our happiness goes with it. Well, try as we might to inoculate ourselves against the fear of change and the inevitable insecurity that change causes. We cannot. No matter how much you've stashed away, no matter how many weekend you know, relationship workshops you've gone to. No, no matter how many, you know, it, it just, it's just not that secure. And we all feel this somewhere just out of sight, just over the horizon or just on the edge of our periphery. We know this to be true. And we just kind of keep doing things to try to keep ahead of it catching up with us. And somehow we know that we can't outrun this insecurity. So we're always uh, scrambling around trying to uh, fix it, our security, our sense of stability safety. But we know somewhere, even without looking too deeply, that there's a level of anxiety in our life about what if. Again, I, I, I missed it. I missed this teaching. I always personalized it and said, well, it's just my anxiety. It's just, I don't feel like I've quite got it together. I haven't quite got enough income. I haven't quite got enough uh, retirement. I, I, it's, it's, it's my limited personal problem, and that's why I feel anxious and anxiety and kind of unstable and insecure. It's just my personal problem. Everyone in the room 
everyone you've ever met, everyone you ever will meet, feels the same thing. It's just my personal not having gotten it together. The Buddha said, not so. This is the way it is for everyone. It's universal. We all live with this condition all the time. Okay. Pain, inevitable insecurity, as if those weren't enough. There's a third uh, <laughs> kind of experience that Dukkha points to, and it has to do with or what's called Sankara Dukkha. Now, there are two flavors. There's the macro view and the micro view. The macro view is we're born totally helpless. And our parents or other caregivers doing the best they can are responsible to feed us, bathe us, clothe us, educate us, love us, coo us, satisfy us for several years. And you know, there isn't anybody, any one of us that is totally satisfied with, what, with how they did. <laughs> <clears throat> Nevertheless, we have managed to survive, and after some years, they have foisted off their responsibility onto our peers and our teachers and other members of society who've taken up the job and have kind of gotten us into our teenage years, whereupon they have finally gotten the message through to us that you're on your own from here on out. Now, or then, we are left with the responsibility. We have to feed ourselves, bathe ourselves, clothe ourselves, groom ourselves, take care of ourselves, and we can't get anybody else to do it for us. Well, okay, now you've got to feed yourself. In order to feed yourself, you've got to get food. In order to get food, you've got to have money. In order to get money, you've got to have a job. In order to get a good job, you got to have 16 years of schooling. Now there's some dukkha. 16 years of schooling just to feed yourself. And you know the whole thing with food. You know, you're looking, you go down the aisles, aisle after aisle of grocery stores, you get all the things you want. You finally get it home, you unpack it all, you put it all in the cupboards, you get, all, you get some of it out, you open it all up, you cook it up on a stove. Sit down to eat, and 10 minutes, it's over. Another 10 minutes cleaning up, another 10 minutes taking out the garbage, and you get to do it again in four hours. <laughs> it's kind of, a, kind of a burden, just taking care of this body. But the body is the easy part. We also have this mind. And the mind, as you know, needs to be entertained. It needs to be distracted, it needs to be satisfied, it needs to be kind of stimulated, or it'll get unhappy. It'll get bored, it'll get unhappy, it'll get depressed, it'll get frustrated, it'll feel impatient, it'll feel uh, disempowered, it'll feel like you don't love it, and, and, and if you don't take care of it, it's just like being on retreat. You just gotta watch it. <clears throat> now, we have this body and we have this mind that's kind of demanding constant attention, and we have to take care of it 24 hours a day. We even have to s figure out how to sleep well, which is not easy for some of us. 24 hours a day, and we have to do this for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight decades. <laughs> At the end of which, it all gets put in a very nice looking box and gets put in a hole in the ground. You know, I'd say bad investment. All that time, all that energy, all that love, all that care. And you have to do it. You can't get anybody to do it for you. If all we're doing is carrying this body and mind from birth to death, trying to accumulate as much pleasure as we can, well, we are wasting our time. It's not worth the effort. 
Think about how much pleasure you've had in your life. A lot, but evidently not yet enough. <laughs> if we haven't gotten enough in, uh, it looks like 30, 40, 50, 60 years, we don't have much time left to get much more. And if that isn't enough to satisfy us, it's not looking good. <clears throat> we can use our life for something much more than seeking pleasure. If we understand that this is the nature of life, this is the condition of life, and we find a way to live in harmony and to suffer less, then sharing that knowledge with others is worthwhile. It is really a good thing to do. Because everyone is faced with this same burden. And many of us don't know it yet. That's the macro view. The micro view is we have these six senses. In Buddha's understanding, the mind is also a sense door. There's the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. And they are constantly being stimulated 24-7. They are just being bombarded with sights and sounds and sensations on the body and thoughts in the mind and ideas. And it's just incessant. And you can't shut it off. You can't shut it off. You can close your eyes, you still see images in the mind, things you've seen before. Try to plug your ears, you still hear. Try to turn your body off so you don't feel some of the painful sensations. Can't avoid them, still there. And your mind, thoughts. We know what that's like. You can't shut it off. It's just kind of incessant. Just kind of, somebody's in there just yabbering away <laughs> these inane, just ridiculous things, and you've got to listen. It's very, very difficult to find relief from this overstimulation. A lot of people take drugs, alcohol, anything, numb out so that they don't have to experience it. But does it work? Not very well. For very long. This is just a fact. We've, we've probably all tried it ourselves. You just can't get away from it. <clears throat> Carrying this body from birth to death with this incessant stimulation of the senses is oppressive. It's just oppressive. And we have to bear it. We have to bear it. It's hard to open to this truth because it's not immediately clear what you can do about it. And so it is very well hidden in our conditioning underneath layers and layers and layers of personal, family, cultural, social, political, economic, and religious conditioning that explains it all and hides this truth from us. Now, when I was growing up back in the 50s in New England, my parents were of the generation and uh, culture that said, look, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Do you think we were talking about dukkha in our house? <laughs> no. And I couldn't hear it from Dharma teachers for 10 years. But now I am so grateful for the teachers who had the courage to just say, this is the way it is. Take a look. And brought dukkha, not just suffering, but dukkha, the full range of it, out of the closet and said, take a look. Now what are you going to do about it? Practice is to investigate this first noble truth. Because it is so well hidden, we don't know 
that we're suffering. Oh, sure, we've got our, our little level of anxiety, and we've got our disappointments, and we've got our fears and frustration, but you know, it's so personal that you know, if we can just get it together, then we'll be free of that. And No, it doesn't happen that way. So to investigate this truth means we have to pay attention to the actual experience of the body and pay attention to the actual experience of the mind. Not just imagine some nice uh, existence outside of the body and outside of the mind where everything is spacious and calm and peaceful and clear. Because it's not like that inside this body, inside this mind. And so to pay attention to the body and to pay attention to the mind, well, we discover really quick pain. If you haven't yet, sit still for 20 minutes, even in the most ergonomically designed chair. <laughs> if you sit still for 20 minutes to pay attention to the body, it'll be screaming. And you know what it's like to not entertain the mind. Just go on retreat for a day. <laughs> and you'll see the discomfort in the mind, the pain, the, ups the, the upsetness, the stress. It's just pretty obvious. So to investigate this truth, it takes diligent effort to just look. That's all. We're not. Some people think, oh, they come, they sit down, or they go on a retreat, or they sit, and the meditation causes the pain. <laughs> I used to believe that. If I didn't sit like this, I wouldn't have the pain. That's why I squirmed around looking for a better sitting posture for 10 years. Paying attention doesn't cause the pain. The pain is already there. It's in the body, it's in the mind. We've just kept ourselves so distracted we've never noticed. Now we're not distracting ourselves. We're saying, wait a minute, cut the distraction. I want to see what's going on. And what do you see? Ouch. Pain, insecurity, oppressive, vulnerability. It's, that's it, first noble truth. Being discovered can't be denied. Everybody experiences dukkha. Men have their dukkha. Women surely have their dukkha. Young people, they have their dukkha. And us older folks are accumulating lots more dukkha. Those who are wealthy, well, they have a lot of, well, they have less dukkha than they used to have, but they got dukkha. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, those of us who are still on the, on the kind of the other end of the spectrum, well, we've had Duke all along, so it's no surprise to us. Okay. <clears throat> uh, those who live in monasteries, spiritual seekers, those who are, I, believe me, they have just as much Dukkha as we who have households, whether we have kids or not. Since the beginning of time, men and women in every walk of life have lived with these conditions, body, mind, insecurity, vulnerability, and oppressiveness of the sense doors. So, maybe you believe in the first noble truth. It's not enough to believe it. You actually have to discover it in your own body, in your own mind. And that takes investigation. That takes practice, paying attention. But if, and since you have been paying attention for at least a few days, and for many of you, many years, did you ever ask yourself, why, after all that I've done in all of my life, all the jobs, all the careers, all the excitement, all the pleasure, all the projects, all the, everything we've done, why aren't we yet satisfied? Why aren't we yet fulfilled? Why aren't we yet content? Why aren't we yet totally at ease with the way things are because we've done it all? Why not? Well, the Buddha asked that question, or the Bodhisattva in his search for an awakening and becoming a Buddha asked that question, said, why do we experience this? And through his piercing understanding of reality, the way things are, he saw it is because of craving. Now let's be clear. Craving, the Buddha said, is the cause of dukkha. 
all that dukkha I just mentioned? Caused by craving. Now, craving doesn't mean just wanting, wanting, wanting. It means being identified with anything as who I am. Uh, craving can be both the wanting and the not wanting. So all forms of aversion are also part of this loba, or this tanha, craving. Huh. Craving. Holding on. Being identified with. Experience is the cause of all of this dukkha. Hmm. Okay. You know, I have lived with this assumption all my life up until I really got this second noble truth. I lived with the assumption that if I could just get what I want, then I'd be happy. Doesn't that make sense? You get what you want, you'll be happy. And the Buddha said, no. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> okay, now why? Why is it that way? Okay. Well, you know, to get anything, you've got to work for it. And, and there's some dukkha. If you can't get what you want, no matter what, I mean, physical, mental, emotional, so civic, social, whatever, political, if you can't get what you want, that's suffering. Okay? If you do get what you want, why is that suffering? It changes. It's unreliable. It's conditioned. It doesn't last very long. If it is alive, whatever it is that you want, if it's alive, hey, it is subject to getting sick, growing old, and dying, whether it's a plant or a person. If it's metal, it's going to rust or corrode. If it's valuable, you have to insure it. The government will tax it. And you have to be careful that thieves, and so you've got to insure it. Okay. If it's digital, it's outdated in six months. If it's an accomplishment, it'll be superseded by someone that's a little faster, a little smarter, a little... It's like, well, the satisfaction from what you acquire doesn't last very long. Get a new car, even a Maserati. Maybe only, how about just a Ford? Uh, or get the last Chevy off the line. <laughs> uh, you know, we're happy, we're satisfied for about well, as long as it takes till you get the first scratch. Somebody bangs it. Somebody slams their door into it. And then... Okay. So, getting what you want also doesn't lead to happiness. Huh. Okay. Well, it's pretty clear that we want pleasant experience. We want to be comfortable in the body, we want to be comfortable in the mind, we want to have good food, we want to have good sleep, we want to have good weather, we want to have a nice car, we want to have a nice house, we want to have, you know, we, we want good distractions, nice pleasant things. We don't want to go to bad movies, we don't want to be a bad movie, you know. <laughs> we want pleasantness. And we, it, it's hard to get pleasantness because the flip side of the coin is not so pleasant. Maybe not painful yet, but it's not so pleasant, it's less satisfying. You know, some of us are really ahead of the game. We know that, hey, this is what the Buddha said. I'm going to practice. I'm going to go on retreat. I'm going to get out of this game. So we come on retreat thinking, aha, now I've escaped my uh, conditioning. And we come in and we sit down and we say, oh, boy, I'd like to have a good sitting. <laughs> there it is again. I'd like to have something. <clears throat> it's one of, our, one of our students in, uh, in the Midwest says, Nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> you know, you come in and just happen upon, you know, a good sitting. Wow, it's quiet, the body's comfortable, the mind's not too restless. Phew, man, you can't help but think, man, this is the way it's going to be the rest of the retreat. What a great retreat I'm going to have. And it never is that way. You come into the next sitting for the next day and a half or two days, and it's like looking for that same old experience not in sight. And we're struggling. We want it. And we can't get it. And we're, we're getting more frustrated and disappointed and painful. And Be careful what you wish for. You might get it. 
The Buddha said, not only do we uh, crave pleasant experience, we also crave continued existence. Even though this is, this is what we're living with, we want more of it. You know, now, well, let's not get too esoteric. What's that mean? Well, let me just ask you. Did you have planning mind today? <coughs> planning mind today? Anybody do any planning today? Yeah. What's planning mind? Planning mind is imagining a better future. <laughs> well, you know what? Right now, today, is the better future that you imagined before. You know, John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. And while we're making other plans, we're laying down tracks in the future of how we want to see ourselves, how we're going to be happier, we're going to be healthier, we're going to be more fulfilled, we're going to be more enlightened. Yeah. Do you ever make plans for being sick, you know, kind of <laughs> stupider, kind of a less aware? And no, but it happens anyway. We're always trying to, trying to something better. Another project, another pair of shoes, as Kamala would say. Another whatever, just looking for more. Da, 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 da. <clears throat> better futures. But the Buddha is really, really insightful. He says, not only better futures, we also crave the end of existence. Well, let's not get too scary about that. What's that mean? Did you have any pain today? You know that pain when you're sitting with this pain and you just think, Jesus, I wish this would stop. What do you wish would stop? That sense of yourself that's suffering. You wish it was over with. That is craving the end of suffering. Huh. Okay. You know, there's been some recent um, surveys and studies done where uh, they've studied. Uh, people who uh, have won the lottery. You know, you win the lottery, you buy some money, you buy some tickets, and you win a gazillion dollars. And uh, for most of us, we think, well, I'm going to be happy. Well, what they found is that one year, within one year after winning the lottery, the baseline happiness of people who won the lottery is no different than the day before they won the lottery. They paid off some bills, they bought some new things, but their happiness unchanged. Well, they also studied people who had catastrophic uh, accidents and illnesses, diagnoses, and they found the same thing. Th one year after their catastrophic uh, health event, baseline happiness, no different than before the diagnosis, before the accident. They also studied uh, what people think will make them happy. And what people think will make them happy doesn't make them as happy as they think it should. <laughs> and they also studied what people fear. And what people fear doesn't make them afraid, as afraid as they think it would. Well, when you take these studies all together, what it means is we have no idea what will make us happy. <laughs> and our happiness is not dependent on conditions. It's like, why are we... Why, why are we struggling to get all this stuff to make us happy? <clears throat> Our happiness is independent of what we have, but rather it's in our relationship to what we have, what we don't have, how we imagine the future. It is said that this second noble truth of craving is to be abandoned be abandoned, to be let go of. Because craving is the cause for dukkha, letting go is the end of dukkha. Okay, so now the Buddha has said, okay, there's this truth of dukkha caused by craving. Good luck. What would we do? What would we do if we were just left with that much information? Hmm. Well, the Buddha was kind to us. He, he went on to realize and articulate the third noble truth, which is there is an end to all that dukkha. There's an end. It comes from the abandoning of all craving. And often the third noble truth is spoken about in terms of enlightenment, 
Cabana. Uh, these pretty lofty uh, goals. But, and sometimes it's, it's a little hard to understand, well, what's that got to do with sitting here with my knee pain, following the breath? So I want to speak about the Third Noble Truth in terms of our experiences here today. Because it is the end of craving that brings about the end of dukkha. Okay. <clears throat> One way we experience the end of craving or holding and get some relief from suffering occurs in this way. When the mind is wandering and it's entangled in all kinds of fantasies and, you know, stories and stuff. We don't even know what we don't even know what it's doing. But when we come to and we kind of like land on earth again, we see what's going on and we can right then intentionally just let go. We notice that we're just caught up in some thought or some anxiety or some memory. We just say, oh, let that go. But if you weren't aware of it, you couldn't let it go. And your mind would still be entangled in this very unsatisfying thing. Okay, awareness gives us the opportunity to intentionally let go. Well, when I first started uh, practice, I had a really interesting experience. I went to university uh, and studied engineering. And I went at the time when uh, there weren't these handheld calculators. It was all done with slide rules and a lot of longhand math. And it was just a lot of multiplying and a lot of dividing and just a tremendous uh, mathematical requirements. So when I went to my first retreat, plural, <clears throat> when my mind wandered, it wandered off into mathematical calculations. And I would come to finding myself multiplying out these four and five digit numbers in my head, <laughs> just like da -da 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 -da. And I would come to and I'd say, do I need to be doing this right now? <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, wandering mind, it wanders off into what it is used to doing. It, it's habitual. If you're into worrying, it'll wander off into worrying. If you're into mathematics, it'll wander off into mathematics. But by seeing it, I could let go. Thank, what a, what a relief. In that, I mean, in that moment, you can imagine, in that moment, it was just, I do not need to know the answer. <laughs> Let it go. What a relief. That's end of craving brings about the end of dukkha. Momentary relief. Don't overlook that. A second way that we experience the end of dukkha occurs when we see any defilement. So we're paying attention, defilement enters the mind, and we see we are obsessed. We are caught. We are wound up in some fear, some anxiety, some rant, some anger, some something. We're just kind of, and we see it. Well, in, in seeing it, there's some arresting of it. It's not kind of jerking us around quite so hard. But even though we might say, okay, let go, Steve. <laughs> Good luck. I mean, it's still, you know, the mind is still churning away. But with encouragement, we can just watch it and be with it and just try to feel our way along. And we'll see it come to an end. Or we'll, we'll just lose interest in it. Or it just isn't, well, it's just not so interesting anymore. And at some point, the mind stops obsessing. <sighs> what a temporary relief. That's the end of holding on. The obsessing mind, you know, the addictive mind, the craving mind, the, the uh, kind of obsessive compulsive mind that just <laughs> won't let go. You watch it until <sighs> finally let's go for a moment. And you get this moment of relief. End of craving, end of dukkha. There's a third way that we experience uh, the end of dukkha. And this retreat really hasn't been long enough to really get a 
mature, a sense of just how mature the mind can be in equanimity. I know Kamala's been teaching it, we've been talking about it, and encouraging you to, to uh, recognize equanimity and non-equanimity, and to cultivate equanimity. Uh, but usually it takes a little longer to get a really strong momentum of equanimity in the mind. But what is equanimity? Equanimity is the mind that is not reacting. You know, so much of our suffering is something comes up and we push, we don't want it, get caught there. Something else comes up, we want it, we hang on there. Equanimity is seeing what arises, not getting caught, not getting caught in reactivity. And so there's a natural relief in the mind when the mind is full of equanimity, facing all of life's changing conditions with balance. The mind just hovers in a, well, a non-craving, non-attached, non-identified space. Relief. Ongoing but temporary Relief, end of craving, end of dukkha. When the mind is balanced, strong equanimity, yet seeing clearly every moment that arises, we see the, you know, the uh, changeable nature of the body, the mind, the environment, and just something new is arising in every moment. Every moment, something's arising. When the mind is balanced and not pushing away and not reaching for any of those experiences, the mind comes to understand three things. The first is the mind comes to understand that everything is impermanent. It is not confused anymore. It truly understands everything is impermanent. It sees it in each moment. Arises, pass away, arises, pass away, arises, pass away. When the mind knows that everything that it has ever experienced or ever will experience is impermanent, the mind doesn't have to let go. It doesn't even reach for to hold on to what it knows is impermanent. Well, this knowledge is freeing because no longer are we looking, no longer are we, is the mind looking for anything to hold on to because it knows it's all impermanent. We know everything's impermanent. You don't have to kind of sit for 10 years to figure that out. We know it in our head. What we don't know is how to live it moment to moment. That's why we practice. We practice so that we can learn how to be aware of what's going on in each moment and how to let go of it right now, in every moment. This is the insight into impermanence. But there's another insight, that the, another knowledge that the mind comes to know, and it is the knowledge of dukkha. Now, I mentioned dukkha. And we can all understand what pain is, what vulnerability is, what insecurity is, what oppressiveness is. We don't, we, I think you followed me pretty clear on that. You understand it up here. But still, in our heart, in our mind, when we're paying attention, we want to believe otherwise. That something in this experience is going to be satisfying. It's not going to be painful, it's going to be permanent, it's going to be enduring, it's going to last, it's not going to be oppressive, and it's going to be great. No. Haven't seen the truth yet. But when the mind is seeing that everything that arises is either painful or it is changeable and therefore unstable and cannot provide security, or it is just oppressive in its incessantness, the mind knows this about every experience. Anything that arises and is known is seen to be or have the characteristic of dukkha. When you understand this about all experience, the mind does not want to reach for and hang on to anything. 
And so the mind just is in a perpetual state of letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. Because of the understanding, the knowledge of the characteristic of dukkha in all phenomena. There's a third understanding that the mind, uh, the insightful mind, arise, arrives at. And it is the understanding that everything that arises is due to conditions. It's just a temporary appearance in the mind due to conditions which are also just temporary conditions in the mind. Everything is just made up of temporary, impermanent, fleeting, insubstantial things. Take a rainbow, for example. What is a rainbow? It is a colorful appearance in the sky due to certain conditions, moisture, sunlight, and viewing it from a certain angle. And when, we, when those conditions prevail, we see a rainbow, beautiful, lovely. It looks like there's something there. We'd like to be able to take that rainbow and put it in our pocket, take it home and put it in the living room. Where does the rainbow go when the rainbow goes? The rainbow doesn't go anywhere. It's not over the horizon. It's not behind the tree. It's not under the rock. The conditions cease to exist. The rainbow is seen now for what it really was, insubstantial. Everything that appears in the mind is just like that. It's an appearance in the mind due to conditions. And the appearance is there for as long as those conditions prevail. And when those conditions dissolve and pass away, as they inevitably all do, the appearance goes with it. Wow. When we understand this, or when the mind understands this, when wisdom understands this, it sees everything is just an appearance in the mind. It knows it, moment to moment. It's not fooled by any appearance in the mind. So the mind doesn't reach for, doesn't hang on to, doesn't expect anything to last or be substantial. The mind is again in a perpetual state of just letting go, not holding on. Huh. Okay. If the mind is not grasping, it's not reaching, it's not holding on, that's the end of craving temporarily. End of craving, end of dukkha, temporarily. But from this place of the exquisitely balanced mind, full of equanimity, that sees the truth about every phenomena that arises, every moment's experience, and doesn't hold on, the mind, that mind, can access the unconditioned, that which is not conditioned by anything. The unconditioned is a reality. It is not the mind. It is not the body. It's not made up of anything of the mind or anything of the body. It is a reality that can be realized. The characteristic of the unconditioned is utter and absolute enduring peace. It has no size, no shape, no color, no texture. There's no words to describe it. Nevertheless, it can be realized. And when it is realized, then you understand. Or then it is understood. This is the end of dukkha. Huh. That's what the Buddha was pointing to. All of the momentary and temporary experiences of the end of dukkha show us that it's possible, point us to the way. But it is only upon realizing the unconditioned, Nibbana, that the knowledge of liberation, peace, freedom is, is realized. The Buddha said of this end of suffering, he said, it is deep, it is hard to see, it is hard to understand, it is peaceful, it is sublime, it is beyond mere reasoning, 
It is subtle. It means you can't think your way to the unconditioned. You can observe your way there. You can realize it, and it will have its liberating effect on the mind. This third noble truth is to be realized by each one of us individually, by ourselves. It cannot be given to you. It cannot be, you cannot receive it from another. You can be encouraged. They can point the way. But you have to realize it for yourself. And the way to realize it is through the development of the fourth noble truth, which is the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is essentially three trainings. The training in sila, or living in harmony, living ethically, which purifies our speech and behavior of defilements, letting go of those defilements, giving us the opportunity of experiencing the happiness of living in harmony within and without. The second training is a training in samadhi, or collectedness of mind, stability of mind, concentration of mind, sometimes it's called, where the mind is purified of the defilements temporarily, no longer obsessed in the mind. And when the mind is temporarily unobsessed with any of the defilements, there is a, a great tranquility in the mind, a great uh, stability in the mind. And this tranquility and stability is uh, a more enduring happiness. It's a kind of happiness. It's a kind of joy. More enduring and subtler than the happiness of living in harmony. Nevertheless, things can change. And so the Buddha offered a third uh, training, which is a training in the development of insight, knowledge, wisdom, where through insight practice, as I've just described it, and as we are practicing here, we come to know these three characteristics of all phenomena. They change, they're unstable or they're suffering, and they're impersonal, they're insubstantial, they're evanescent. And with that knowledge, we purify our understanding of the way things are. And once you understand things correctly, how do you erase that from the mind? It's not possible. What we're doing here is practicing in such a way as to address our wrong understanding of the way things are. And as we come to know truly the way things are, from our own deep experience of the truth, then we can live with this liberating knowledge without entangling ourselves in the conditions that appear in life. This is the Buddha's path. These teachings are the uh, essential, kind of the bedrock teaching of all Buddhist traditions. Wherever the Buddha's teachings go, that's where the Four Noble Truths are established. And while the practices and the rituals and the way of discussing and talking about and encouraging others to practice, to realize the Four Noble Truths are very different in different cultures, the truth that is realized are these four. The truth of dukkha, the truth that craving is the cause of this dukkha, the truth of the uh, end of dukkha is real, possible, realizable, and the truth that the way to realize the end of dukkha is through development of these three trainings, however you practice them. Why did the Buddha teach the Four Noble Truths? Because it is beneficial, he said. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. 
So let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.